As Philip mentioned, my name is Daniel Schreiner. If you have an association with Midwestern Baptist Seminary, Patrick, the New Testament scholar Patrick Schreiner is my younger brother. Uh, I taught him everything he knows. <laughs> Quinn, you can tell him I said that. But it is such a, a joy and a privilege to be with you worshiping our risen Lord Jesus Christ together this morning. I, I bring you greetings from Hinson Baptist Church in Portland, Oregon. Hinson is the church that Jeff and Stephanie Chang were faithful members of for many years, and Jeff served as an associate pastor there alongside me. And uh, we're, so, we're so thankful at Hinson, we are so thankful to send the Chang family to a faithful gospel church here at Warnell Road uh, Baptist Church. And I'm so thankful for my friendship with Jeff and the Chang family and Philip and the Van Steenbergs. They have been such Christ-like friends to me and have, have pastored me over the years. And so I am I am happy for you that you have elders like Philip and Jeff. And uh, Philip, I'm thankful for this opportunity to open up God's word uh, with you all today. Who is better? Who is better? Brady or Mahomes? Elvis or Taylor? Julia Roberts or Tom Hanks? Lincoln or Washington? LeBron or MJ, Spurgeon or Whitfield, <laughs> Keller or Piper. Philip, you didn't warn me yet. Such an interactive congregation. I love it. We're not going to cast our votes today, but we love, and I can tell you love to play the who is better game, uh, to measure leaders, athletes, celebrities, uh, maybe even preachers by their peers. I wonder why we do this. Why can't we just accept everyone for who they are? <laughs> Uh, to think about what makes us obsessed with comparison, we want to turn this morning to arguably the greatest song of all time. And I'm not talking about Amazing Grace or uh, the Jupiter Symphony or Hey Jude or Hey Ya. We're going to look at Psalm 110 today. Martin Luther, the great Protestant theologian called Psalm 110, the truly supreme chief psalm of our dear Lord Jesus Christ. So I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles now to Psalm 110. Uh, if you want to use one of the blue pew Bibles in front of you, you can find that on page 509. Psalm 110 on page 509 of the pew Bibles. And consider as I read why the New Testament authors were such big fans of this ancient song and prayer. Psalm 110, a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. 
Therefore, he will lift up his head. Just think for a moment of all the wonderful Psalms we have in the book of Psalms. You have Psalm 23, which I know you meditated on earlier this year. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 119, your word is a lamp unto my feet. Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And yet, of all the Psalms in the Psalter, Psalm 110 stands apart. The New Testament writers go to this Psalm and this Old Testament scripture more than any other Psalm or Old Testament scripture quoted or alluded to between 25 and 30 times in the New Testament. What is it about this Psalm that caused New Testament writers to turn to it again and again? Why did Jesus himself quote this Psalm as the key to his identity in the gospels? Why did Peter conclude his epic sermon at Pentecost in Acts two by quoting this Psalm? First Corinthians 15, we heard from Hebrews earlier and many other new Testament texts, the new Testament authors had a crush on Psalm 110. They couldn't get enough of it. Why? That's why I chose to preach this text to you. I wanted to explore with you what is so significant about this psalm. What is it about Psalm 110 that is so key to the message of Christ crucified, risen, ascended, and reigning at the right hand of the Father? I'm excited to explore this with you today in the time that we have. Uh, a good mutual friend, uh, Bobby Jameson, uh, said that Psalm 110 is like the master key that unlocks the theology of the New Testament. So let's turn to Psalm 110 and consider what, I, what is my main argument for today as we, as we walk through this psalm. Jesus is better than you think. Jesus is better than you think. He's a better Lord who brings a better victory, which results in a better hope. So if you're, if you're taking notes, those will be the buckets in which we organize our thoughts. Jesus is better than you think. Better Lord brings a better victory, which results in a better hope. So Lord, victory, and hope. My prayer for us today, as we dive into God's word, is that no matter what you're going through today, that you will delight in the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns as king and serves as our representative in heaven. So let's look at God's word and see how Jesus is better than you think. First, Jesus is a better Lord. Jesus is a better Lord. We're just going to look at the first verse for a while. He's a better Lord than you think and a better Lord than all the other leaders or people we tend to look to for authority, including ourselves. I think the, the first verse here, Psalm 110.1, is dripping with expectation and promise. But before we consider the Lord's declaration there in verse 1, let's consider the Holy Spirit-inspired author. We shouldn't miss that this is a psalm of David. 
I'd encourage you to, to read the titles when you read the Psalms. This is a Psalm of David. And that's significant, particularly to this Psalm. David was the most victorious and decorated king in all of Israel's history. Israel continued to remember and celebrate David long after he died. But it wasn't just that they were nostalgic for the good old days when David led the armies out to mighty victories and Israel was the greatest nation on earth. God made a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7 that one of David's descendants would sit on David's throne forever. So with that amazing promise in mind, this psalm begins now in verse 1 with a royal pronouncement from heaven. Verse 1, the Lord said, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. I'm going to confess this verse at first glance is a little confusing. You have to read over it a couple times to try to figure out what's going on. Let me paraphrase this verse. Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit in the place of greatest honor until I crush your enemies. Yahweh says to David's Lord, sit in the place of greatest honor until I crush your enemies. Let's be clear. The first Lord, which in your, some of your translations will be in all caps, is God. This is Yahweh speaking. But who is the second Lord? Kids, any guesses? Who's the second Lord? Jesus. That's right. But don't uh, steal my thunder, please. We're getting there. Uh, the my, so the my in verse one said, the Lord says to my Lord, that first my, that's David. So who would David call the Lord? Someone that Yahweh invites to come and be his right-hand man. Who could that be? Well, let's, uh, let's consider what the Jews would have thought. In their context, that many Jews thought that this was a royal messianic psalm. In, in other words, David is speaking prophetically about his descendant who would sit on his throne per God's promise that I referenced earlier from 2 Samuel 7. And, and that's the interpretive context in which Jesus finds himself almost a thousand years later after David authored this psalm. You know, we might expect, you know, and even especially as Christians today, we might just jump like, oh, okay, yeah, this is, this is about Jesus. But Jesus himself doesn't just open Psalm 110.1 like he does with some other Old Testament scriptures and be, be like, guess what, guys? Um, my, David's talking about me. That's me. I'm the Messiah. That's, that's who Yahweh's talking about. That's not Jesus's style here, particularly with this psalm. Before Jesus explicitly reveals his identity, he deconstructs the religious leader's expectations of who the Messiah or the Lord's going to be. Jesus asks, and this is really key, so st stick with me to, to the argument here. Jesus asks, how can the Messiah be David's son if David himself calls him Lord? Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus is not saying that the Messiah isn't a descendant of David. Jesus is simply arguing straight from Psalm 110.1 that the Messiah is much greater than merely David's son. 
He's like David's son plus a ton more. He's David's Lord. It's, it's right there in the text. Jesus, Jesus preaches like a little mini sermon. At least that's what we have of it in the gospels. And you can find that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And his sermon on Psalm 110.1, that, like, that the Messiah is even greater than David's son, it thrills the crowd. It delights them. And it infuriates the religious leaders. Jesus is suggesting that someone greater than David is here. Someone that the great King David even called Lord. And Jesus wasn't done blowing things up blowing up expectations. When Jesus is questioned by the high priest just a day before his crucifixion, the high priest asks Jesus, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And listen carefully how Jesus confidently responds. I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power. Ding, 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 ding. Seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. In one concise statement, Jesus, the soon-to-be-crucified Jesus, demonstrates he is not only David's Lord, but he's the I Am, God's presence, the very revelation of God himself, as we consider from Exodus 3. He is the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the one who's coming on the clouds of heaven and is given dominion, glory, and honor from the Ancient of Days. And that's all packed into Psalm 110.1, combined with this. Uh, Friends, Psalm 110.1 may be the most Christologically vivid verse in the entire Old Testament. Let's not miss it. In in other words, I think in Psalm 110.1, we're getting a glimpse of the unity of the Trinity the glory and authority of the son, the location of where Jesus reigns from and the divinity of Christ. There is so much packed in to this one verse. And this is how David kicks off his worship in Psalm 110. And we're just getting started. I wonder if you have ever thought you were about to take a sip of water only to discover that it's Sprite. The religious leaders of Jesus' day were expecting the coming Messiah, the son of David, to be water. And when he turned out to be much more than that, they spit him out. So friends, what are your expectations of Jesus? What are your expectations of Jesus? Do you expect him to make you healthy, wealthy, and wise, to make you happy, fulfilled, to give you a beautiful spouse, obedient children, and a comfortable retirement? Friends, Jesus points to Psalm 110.1 and demonstrates that he is more than a cosmic vending machine to give us what we think we need. He didn't come to give you merely friends, a community, a good job. He didn't come as David's Lord to help you be a better person so that you might commend yourself to God. Jesus came as king. And even now he sits exalted 
at the right hand of God. For Christians in the room, I think most of the time we tend to conceive of Jesus as simply Savior. We rejoice in the cross as the place where our sins are forgiven and in the resurrection as the hope of our eternal life. And we want to continue to do that. But let's not miss what the New Testament writers couldn't get enough of. That Jesus is not only Savior, but he is Lord. He reigns from heaven. If he's David's Lord, he must be our Lord. So, how does your vision of Jesus as Lord need to expand today? How can we enlarge our vision of, of not Jesus made in our own image, putting him in a box, suiting, molding him around our own expectations, desires, and needs? How does your vision of Jesus as Lord need to grow? I have three brief suggestions of how we can grow our vision of Jesus as Lord, expanding our spiritual vision of him. First, if Jesus is Lord, and he is, our vision will be expanded through obedience. Would you say that this last week you obeyed the Lord Jesus Christ? Scripture scripture argues that we're naturally obedient people, but we tend to obey ourselves. We tend to be slaves, apart from Christ, of our passions and our desires. Even as Christians, we, we struggle with obedience. So Christian, what would it look like for you to make progress and obedience to Jesus as Lord this week? How will you plan? How will you plan to submit to him in love? You know, if, if there is an area of your life that is not under submission to Jesus as Lord, who are you going to talk to about that this week? Consider if there's someone in this church, you could ask for help. I'm struggling in obedience in this area of my life. I'm struggling to trust Jesus' authority in this way. I, maybe to just press it a little deeper, finish this sentence in your mind or even in your notes. I struggle to obey the Lord when blank. I struggle to obey the Lord when or like I mentioned earlier, you could finish this sentence One area of my life that is not completely submitted to the Lord Jesus is blank. One area of my life that is not completely submitted to the Lord Jesus is blank. I have found from my own life that often the areas that I find myself being, the areas of my life that I'm anxious about, that that reveals an area where I am not submitting to Jesus's lordship, where I'm not walking in obedience, where I'm struggling to submit to him as Lord. Naturally, we want to be in control of our lives. But part of submitting to Jesus as Lord is confessing we're not in control, and that is a good thing. 
that we're not in control and that Jesus reigns as Lord. If the wind and the waves obey Jesus Christ, we would be wise to as well. So that's my first suggestion. Our vision of Jesus as Lord will be expanded through obedience. Second, if Jesus is Lord, let's humble ourselves in ministry and in service. Uh, Some of you here may be interested in uh, positions of authority in the church or even serving in full-time vocational ministry. And I think Psalm 110.1 is a good word for us here. Yahweh didn't exalt his son at the position of authority and power so that finally we might be exalted. And yet, I think so often we are like the disciples, right? We hope that Jesus will be a means to us being respected, honored. We, we want to be at Jesus' right hand and left hand in glory. But friends, we need to remember what Jesus said about humility and service, even when his disciples asked to be seated at his right hand and left hand. There is no crown without the cross. Only, I'd encourage you to only pursue leadership in the church and ministry if you're willing to humble yourself under the authority of King Jesus. And trust me, it will humble you if you are submitted to him. His, his ways are often mysterious and difficult, uh, but he disciplines the ones that he loves. So second, our, our vision of Jesus as Lord needs to expand through humble service. Third, if Jesus is Lord, we should rejoice in his reign, uh, even when it's difficult. We should rejoice in his reign, even when it's hard. Some of us feel like life is often a bit overwhelming and not very fulfilling, if we're honest, right? No, we, we long for a greater purpose or, or something more exciting to look forward to. I, I think maybe for, especially for parents of young children, it feels like our whole life is just like making dinner, loading the dishwasher, putting the kids to bed, going to bed and doing it all over again. Kids, some of you just started school this last month and it's like, hey, we're only like a month or so in, already tired of it already finding it monotonous and boring. So, but I think even in the drudgery, even in the monotony, this psalm is causing us, should cause us to cast our eyes up and see Jesus reigning. Jesus uh, gloriously reigning over all things. And, and that he's in charge and he is working everything according to the purpose of his will. If we have a Lord like this reigning in heaven, life has meaning. So let's look up with eyes of faith and be rejoicing even in Christ's reign, even when it's difficult, even when it seems like uh, our life doesn't matter. You know, like I said earlier, as Christians, we tend to focus a lot And for right reason on the incarnation, the life of Christ, his death and his resurrection. But there is so much more about Jesus to explore. 
that we see here, just scratching the surface of this first verse in Psalm 110. Christ ascended to heaven in glory before his disciples, and he reigns from heaven as Yahweh's right-hand man. So let's allow the present reign of Christ to break him out of the box that we tend to put him in our, in our own minds. He is so much more, so much more glorious than we give him credit for. You know, when Yahweh placed David's Lord at his right hand until his enemies were conquered, he declared that all creation must submit to him and worship. If Yahweh would honor his son like this, how much more should we who were created to know and to worship him, serve this king of kings? So just in this first verse, we see the identity of the Lord. He is not merely David's promised son. He is David's Lord. And he is honored by the Lord in the position where no angel or no human could sit at the right hand of the father. This is God's right hand man. Jesus is a better Lord than we could ever imagine. He is a better Lord than the Lords that we try to be for our own lives. For Jesus actually reigns and has control, unlike our pathetic attempts at controlling our own lives. But why does this matter? Okay, this is, this is, who, this is who it is who's reigning. If he's a better Lord, it means that he brings a better victory. And that's what we're going to consider second. So he's a better Lord who brings a better victory. And we're going to see this in verses 2 and 3 and then expanded on in verses 5 through, and through 7. So we're going to jump around a bit. Verses 2 and 3 and 5 through 7. Jesus brings a better victory. In verse 1, we saw the heavenly promise. In verses 2 and 3, the fulfillment the, or, of, of victory, the certain fulfillment of victory. Let's look at verse 2. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Yahweh extends this Lord's mighty scepter from Zion, the city of David, the city of refuge, Jerusalem, the place of peace. Those surrounded by enemies, the enemies are no contest for the Lord, for he is ruling over them. That's what we see in verse two. Verse three. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb of the morning. The dew of your youth will be yours. The king's people join the victory in verse 3. They volunteer freely on the day of battle. Where once the king's people were condemned and surrounded on every side, now they know the strength of the king who is with them, who leads them coming down the mountain at full strength. It must be how the Kansas City Chiefs feel with Mahomes at the helm, right? I don't get to preach in Kansas City very often, so I, they feel if the, with Mahomes at the helm, if Mahomes is healthy, the Chiefs feel like they can beat anybody. Or if you're more of an LOTR person, picture the Lord at the head of the army, like Gandalf in Two Towers on Shadowfax coming down the mountain. But more instead of an old man. You have a young man full of vigor and strength. These are the images that we're seeing in verses 2 and 3. He's coming out of the womb of the dawn, fresh and confident. We need to remember that this is poetry here in, in Psalm 110. And, it, you know, it may seem a little foreign to us, these royal pronouncements surrounding enemies, scepters, enemies as footstools, the womb of the dawn. But these are word pictures 
to make us feel the power, the confidence, the victory of a leader who's vindicated by the highest authority in heaven and on earth. David's not done. Rejoicing in the certain victory of this better king and Lord. Look down at verses five through seven with me. I'll read it as a whole. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments, judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. In verses five through seven, we see the Lord and the king now acting as one. You know, the first thing that struck me about this psalm, I was like, it's brutal. It's violent. Uh, these verses remind me of the violence of something like the John Wick movies. Uh, he's crushing kings on the day of his anger, heaping up the corpses. His kill count is off the charts. And at the end of the day, he drinks from the brook and is refreshed and ready for more. Is this the king that you want to volunteer and follow? Just like we thought about in verse 3. Seems a little bloody. Seems a little intense. Friends, the violence of these images are a picture of the dominance and the all-consuming victory of King Jesus to show that his victory is certain. David writes into a brutal and violent and broken world. And he's he's showing us that the Lord is going to take care of that. He's going to come and win a certain victory. I think we need to consider who these enemies are that he's crushing. Who are these these kings? Who's getting crushed? Is it Nazi Germany, Vladimir Putin, Joseph Stalin, ISIS, Boko Haram, North Korea, Mao? You know, who who are we talking about? The child abusers, the rapists, the murderers? Yes. Yes. The, the Lord will one day crush all these enemies. He will shatter those who use their authority to manipulate, abuse, and kill. In a, in a world of evil and injustice, this should bring us great confidence. We live in, a, in, in our culture today. In the 21st century here in America, we live in a very sanitized, like safe, with the illusion of safety. Uh, but, but we are not safe apart from this Lord. I, I live in uh, Portland, as, as Philip, Portland, Oregon, where, where crime and, and drug use have gotten out of control. Thankfully, I don't feel uh, unsafe in our neighborhood in terms of violence. But there's just brokenness everywhere I turn, particularly over the last three years in Portland. Just a few weeks ago, um, there was a man in his 40s, just 10 feet, who, would, who lived in his van 10 feet from my office window at the church, who overdosed and died. There's, there's reminders of sin and death all around. And if you are willing to stop and think about it for more than a minute, we have to wonder, what what is going on? God, are you going to do anything about all this? Will God do anything about all the brokenness, all the evil in this world? 
I want you to look at verses 5 through 7 again. And I want you to particularly note the tense of the verbs. Verse 5, he will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. Verse 6, he will execute judgment among the nations. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Verse 7, he will drink from the brook by the way. He will lift up his head. He will. It's oozing with confidence. But when? When will he do this? As we look around at our broken world, we can begin to doubt that God cares or that he's powerful to reverse the curse. I think those who have been the victims of injustice, who have been sinned against, taken advantage against, who have known great suffering, it's really easy to have a hard time believing that he will make all things right. What could the Lord possibly do to undo the injustice and the hate that you have known? I just... Just this last week, I sat with a couple in our church who told me about untold evils done to their young children when they were serving overseas as missionaries. They went to the authorities, and the authorities did nothing. They went back to their sending church, telling their church what had happened, and the church did nothing. So what do we do? How do we respond? When it feels like evil is winning, what can we do but look at God's word? We look to the king in heaven who promises to come and finish the job. He says that he will crush evil and the enemies that rage against him. And we can be confident of that even when our feelings tell us otherwise because of what Christ has already done. The Apostle Paul was another New Testament writer who meditated on Psalm 110. And this is what Paul rejoices in in 1 Corinthians 15, even in the face of death. Paul says, then comes the end. When he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom of the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Because of where Jesus is and what he has already done, we can be confident that Christ will make all wrongs right. The Lord will establish a reign of justice. He will come again. He will make all things new. He will vanquish all suffering, all pain, frustration, despair, and depression when he comes and reigns in his kingdom and makes all things new. Is this what your confidence is in today? I think so often we are scrambling around, like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic as it goes down, 
losing hope, looking at this broken world, when this psalm, when Jesus causes, calls us to look up, he is reigning and he is coming again. He will do it. Why would the father go to all the trouble to send his beloved son to live the perfect life, to die the death that you and I deserve, to rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, and then that be it? Of course not. He, he reigns to come again. I wonder if you are confident in that today. If that's what your confidence is in, God's certain victory. And, and let's bolster that confidence by continually meditating on the cross and the resurrection. That should be the evidence that we have to know that God will bring his final victory to pass. You know, it, it's not only in the midst of injustice and great suffering that this should give us confidence, but even in anxiety and the unknown of the future, about the future. You know, just this, this last week, I've been struggling with a little anxiety about how my future is unknown. Will I be successful in ministry and as we make future plans to be sent out from our home church for me to serve as a, as a lead pastor somewhere? Will that work out? Will, will the adjustment be okay for our kids? Will they be bitter against the Lord, against the church, or against us uh, in a place that has been so good to our family at Hinson? And as I meditated on what Christ will certainly do, it strengthened my confidence in his sovereignty and his good and perfect will. This is, this is not just a, an encouragement to victims of injustice. God's final victory is the confidence that we need every day. Not a confidence based on our own success, our own performance, or our own abilities. But a promise that is so much better. The confidence that the Lord will win. The judge of all the earth will always do what's right. Well, because Christ will crush his enemies, including death, we can be confident that the lesser evils, the, the lesser enemies, rather, anxiety, depression, discouragement, frustration, insecurity, and indwelling sin will also be conquered. And if we are a part of the Lord's army, we are on the winning side. And our lives will count for eternity, not because we are so great, but because he is. So let's look to Christ's victory instead of looking at ourselves. And we, when we do that, I think that should fill us with hope. And that's what we're going to consider third and finally, a better hope. Let's turn to Psalm 110.4. Jesus is a better hope. Psalm 110 verse 4. Just a quick review in verse 1. The Lord Yahweh made a declaration that David's Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, will sit at Yahweh's right hand until Christ's enemies are conquered. We saw that that victory was certain in verses 2 and 3 and expanded on in verses 5 through 7. But I hope you noticed that we skipped verse 4. This Verse 4 is what makes this psalm good news for people like us. For apart from verse 4, well... God coming in justice isn't really good news for us. We are the enemies of the Lord that, that he must conquer to establish his kingdom. The Lord is a mighty king who will reign, but in our pride, we don't want him to reign. We want to reign. 
We want to call the shots. We want to be autonomous and independent. We want to be king. So why is this vision of Jesus, the conquering king, bringing his final and certain victory, good news to us today? Verse four, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is not just a mighty king who blows our expectations out of the water of, in how powerful and victorious he is. He doesn't just have his boot on the necks of his enemies. This isn't just a psalm that exalts that David's Lord is more than David's son, but David's Lord. Here in verse 4, we have good news. The king is also a priest. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek isn't just a good name if you have for your kids, if you have 10 kids and homeschool. I was homeschooled. Melchizedek appears out of nowhere in the book of Genesis in Genesis 14 as a priest king to whom Abraham honors and tithes to. Uh, the book of Hebrews will, will meditate on Melchizedek for a while. You'll, you'll get there eventually with, uh, with your pastor Jeff as he walks through Hebrews. Um, Melchizedek's mysterious origin and appearance on the pages of scripture, though, in brief, become a paradigm for how we are to understand the combination of priest and king, those two offices in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, Jesus is a mighty victorious king, but he uses his strength he uses all that power and might to represent sinners like us before the throne of God above. You know, I assume in a room this size that not everyone here is a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you don't maybe identify, maybe you're here this morning and you don't identify as a Christian. And I say on behalf of Warnell Road Baptist Church and the elders, we're so glad that you are here this morning. Uh, you are always welcome here. I want you to consider, if you are not a believer in the Lord, if today you will have this priest as your eternal representative and advocate in heaven. That's what's being offered today. You can have this priest's services by turning from your sin and repentance and trusting that Jesus is who he says he is. Be done with seeking to represent yourself before God, trusting in your own good works. Upgrade to the ultimate representative to the one who came as a man, died the sacrifice as the sacrifice for sinners and rose again in victory, ascended to the father and now represents sinners, screw ups, people who have made horrible mistakes, the proud, the selfish, thieves. This is who lives. Jesus is who lives to plead our case before the Father, not with 
anything to do with us. The only thing we contribute to our salvation is our sin. But he pleads his perfect life. If Again, if you are not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I know that the people sitting around you, certainly myself or any of the elders, would love nothing more than to talk about what it would mean for Jesus to be your representative in heaven before the Father. You know, if you, if you, tr- if you suspect that maybe you are trusting in your own performance, maybe you, you think, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I go to church. But if you're honest with yourself, you're trusting your own performance rather than this king and priest who offers his life for yours. I'd encourage you to talk again with someone today. What would it look like to depend wholly, not on your own performance, but on his? Uh, I know for kids, I, I grew up in the church. That this, can be, this can be difficult to untangle in our own hearts. We think that God accepts us based on our good works, just naturally. We try to do good things in order to commend ourselves to him. But that is not how we are made right with God. We need this priest in heaven pleading our case, not with how good we are, but how good he is. Warnell Road Baptist Church. Are you living like you have this kind of representative in heaven? I think sometimes it's like we have a billion dollars in the bank, but we live poor. We worry about our financial future because we keep forgetting who is representing us in heaven. Church, I'd encourage you to withdraw some of the hope from the riches of heaven today. Withdraw some of that hope from the riches of heaven today. Be confident that the one who is representing you before the father will not let you down. This is the grounds for assurance. Not looking inward, but looking up. This is the reason for our hope. Not our merits, but his. We could have a fun time discussing who is the best athlete, actor, president, or even song of all time. Uh, But even if some celebrity or athlete famous athlete walked through these doors and sat down next to you and, and offered to be your BFF. It would not compare to what is offered you today in this text. Jesus is better than we ever imagined. He's a better Lord who has and will accomplish a better victory, which results in a better hope. As long as he lives and reigns and continues to intercede for us, our life with him is secure. Do you believe this? Let's go to our king and representative in heaven in prayer. Now, would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we confess before you that we look to ourselves so much more naturally 
than looking to your son. We are obsessed with ourselves. And we pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would forgive us for our pride. We pray that you would forgive us for for measuring our worth by comparing ourselves to others. We pray that you would forgive us, Father, uh, for the ways that we think little of Christ. And Father, we pray that you would enlarge our vision of him today. Lord, we pray that you would stir our affections even now. Uh, Help us to rejoice in who stands as our advocate, as our representative, the victorious King Jesus, uh, who reigns over all of heaven and earth, over all of history, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and who cares about us, who is for us. Oh, so Lord, help us to cast our cares on him, knowing that he cares for us and you care for us, Father. And so we pray that you would be glorified even in this church family that is seeking to run the race in faith, looking not to themselves, but to Jesus. Help them to encourage one another daily to look to Christ in all the the trials and discouragements that they face. O Lord, be glorified in this church. And we thank you that you promised to return and make all things new. And we pray that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.